Volume 1, Chapter 10 of Marius the Epicurean This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Marius the Epicurean by Walter Pater Volume 1, Chapter 10 On the Way Merum est ut animus agitatione motuque corporis excitetur. Pliny's Letters Many points in that train of thought, its harder and more energetic practical details especially, at first surmised but vaguely in the intervals of his visits to the tomb of Flavian, attained the coherence of formal principle amid the stirring incidents of the journey which took him, still in all the buoyancy of his nineteen years and greatly expectant, to Rome. That summons had come from one of the former friends of his father in the capital, who had kept himself acquainted with the lad's progress, and, assured of his parts, his courtly ways, above all of his beautiful penmanship, now offered him a place, virtually that of an amanuensis, near the person of the philosophic emperor. The old town-house of his family on the Caelian Hill, so long neglected, might well require his personal care, and Marius, relieved a little by his preparations for travelling, from a certain over-tension of spirit in which he had lived of late, was presently on his way, to await introduction to Aurelius, on his expected return home, after a first success, elusive enough as it was soon to appear, against the invaders from beyond the Danube. The opening stage of his journey, through the firm golden weather, for which he had lingered three days beyond the appointed time of starting, days brown with the first rains of autumn, brought him, by the byways among the lower slopes of the Apennines of Luna, to the town of Luca, a station on the Cassian Way. Travelling so far, mainly on foot, while the baggage followed under the care of his attendants. He wore a broad felt hat, in fashion not unlike a more modern pilgrim's, the neat head projecting from the collar of his grey pinula, or travelling mantle, sewed closely together over the breast, but with its two sides folded up upon the shoulders, to leave the arms free in walking, and was altogether so trim and fresh, that as he climbed the hill from Pisa, by the long steep lane through the olive-yards, and turned to gaze where he could just discern the cypresses of the old school garden, like two black lines down the yellow walls, a little child took possession of his hand, and, looking up at him with entire confidence, paced on bravely at his side, for the mere pleasure of his company, to the spot where the road declined again into the valley beyond. From this point, leaving the servants behind, he surrendered himself a willing subject, as he walked, to the impressions of the road, and was almost surprised, both at the suddenness with which evening came on, and the distance from his old home at which it found him. And at the little town of Luca, he felt that indescribable sense of a welcoming in the mere outward appearance of things, which seems to mark out certain places for the special purpose of evening rest, and gives them always a peculiar amiability in retrospect. 
under the deepening twilight, the rough tiled roofs seemed to huddle together side by side like one continuous shelter over the whole township, spreading low and broad above the snug sleeping-rooms within, and the place one sees for the first time, and must tarry in but for a night, breathes the very spirit of home. The cottagers lingered at their doors for a few minutes as the shadows grew larger, and went to rest early, though there was still a glow along the road through the shorn cornfields, and the birds were still awake about the crumbling grey heights of an old temple. So quiet and air-swept was the place, you could hardly tell where the country left off in it, and the field-paths became its streets. Next morning he must needs change the manner of his journey. The light baggage-wagon returned, and he proceeded now more quickly, travelling a stage or two by post, along the Cassian Way, where the figures and incidents of the great high road seemed already to tell of the capital, the one centre to which all were hastening, or had lately bidden adieu. That way lay through the heart of the old, mysterious, and visionary country of Etruria, and what he knew of its strange religion of the dead, reinforced by the actual sight of the funeral houses scattered so plentifully among the dwelling-places of the living, revived in him for a while, in all its strength, his old instinctive yearning towards those inhabitants of the shadowy land he had known in life. It seemed to him that he could half divine how time passed in those painted houses on the hillsides, among the gold and silver ornaments, the wrought armour and vestments, the drowsy and dead attendants, and the close consciousness of that vast population gave him no fear, but rather a sense of companionship, as he climbed the hills on foot behind the horses, through the genial afternoon. The road next day passed below a town not less primitive, it might seem, than its rocky perch, white rocks that had long been glistening before him in the distance. Down the dewy paths the people were descending from it to keep a holiday, high and low alike in rough white linen smocks. A homely old play was just begun in an open-air theatre, with seats hollowed out of the turf-grown slope. Marius caught the terrified expression of a child in its mother's arms as it turned from the yawning mouth of a great mask for refuge in her bosom. The way mounted and descended again, down the steep street of another place, all resounding with the noise of metal under the hammer, for every house had its brazier's workshop, the bright objects of brass and copper gleaming like lights in a cave out of their dark roofs and corners. Around the anvils the children were watching the work, or ran to fetch water to the hissing red-hot metal, and Marius too watched, as he took his hasty midday refreshment, a mess of chestnut meal and cheese, while the swelling surface of a great copper water-vessel grew flowered all over with tiny petals under the skilful strokes. Towards dusk a frantic woman at the roadside stood and cried out the words of some filter or malison in verse, with weird motion of her hands, as the travellers passed, like a wild picture drawn from Virgil. But all along, accompanying the superficial grace of these incidents on the way, Marius noted, more and more as he drew nearer to Rome, marks of the great plague. 
Under Hadrian and his successors, there had been many enactments to improve the condition of the slave. The ergastula were abolished, but no system of free labour had as yet succeeded. A whole mendicant population, artfully exaggerating every symptom and circumstance of misery, still hung around, or sheltered themselves within, the vast walls of their old, half-ruined task-houses. And for the most part they had been variously stricken by the pestilence. For once the heroic level had been reached in rags, squints, scars, every caricature of the human type, ravaged beyond what could have been thought possible if it were to survive at all. Meantime the farms were less carefully tended than of old, here and there they were lapsing into their natural wildness. Some villas also were partly fallen into ruin. The picturesque, romantic Italy of a later time, the Italy of Claude and Salvatore Rosa, was already forming, for the delight of the modern romantic traveller. And again Marius was aware of a real change in things on crossing the Tiber, as if some magic effect lay in that though here, in truth, the Tiber was but a modest enough stream of turbid water. Nature, under the richer sky, seemed readier and more affluent, and man fitter to the conditions around him. Even in people hard at work, there appeared to be a less burdensome sense of the mere business of life. How dreamily the women were passing up through the broad light and shadow of the steep streets, with the great water-pots resting on their heads, like women of Cariae, set free from slavery in old Greek temples. With what a fresh primeval poetry was daily existence here impressed, all the details of the threshing-floor and the vineyard, the common farm-life even, the great baker's fires aglow upon the road in the evening. In the presence of all this, Marius felt for a moment like those old, early, unconscious poets who created the famous Greek myths of Dionysus and the Great Mother, out of the imagery of the wine-press and the ploughshare. And still the motion of the journey was bringing his thoughts to systematic form. He seemed to have grown to the fullness of intellectual manhood on his way hither. The formative and literary stimulus, so to call it, of peaceful exercise, which he had always observed in himself, doing its utmost now, the form and the matter of thought alike detached themselves clearly and with readiness from the healthfully excited brain. It is wonderful, says Pliny, how the mind is stirred to activity by brisk bodily exercise. The presentable aspects of inmost thought and feeling became evident to him, the structure of all he meant, its order and outline, defined itself. His general sense of a fitness and beauty in words became effective in daintily pliant sentences, with all sorts of felicitous linking of figure to abstraction. It seemed just then as if the desire of the artist in him, that old longing to produce, might be satisfied by the exact and literal transcript of what was then passing around him, in simple prose, arresting the desirable moment as it passed, and prolonging its life a little. To live in the concrete, to be sure at least of one's hold upon that. 
Again, his philosophic scheme was but the reflection of the data of sense, and chiefly of sight, a reduction to the abstract of the brilliant road he travelled on through the sunshine. But on the seventh evening there came a reaction in the cheerful flow of our traveller's thoughts, a reaction with which mere bodily fatigue, asserting itself at last over his curiosity, had much to do, and he fell into a mood, known to all passably sentimental wayfarers, as night deepens again and again over their path, in which all journeying, from the known to the unknown, comes suddenly to figure as a mere foolish truancy, like a child's running away from home, with the feeling that one had best return at once, even through the darkness. He had chosen to climb on foot, at his leisure, the long windings by which the road ascended to the place where that day's stage was to end, and found himself alone in the twilight, far behind the rest of his travelling companions. Would the last zigzag round and round those dark masses, half-natural rock, half-artificial substructure, ever bring him within the circuit of the walls above? It was now that a startling incident turned those misgivings almost into actual fear. From the steep slope a heavy mass of stone was detached, after some whisperings among the trees above his head, and rushing down through the stillness, fell to pieces in a cloud of dust across the road just behind him, so that he felt the touch upon his heel. That was sufficient, just then, to rouse out of its hiding-place his old vague fear of evil, of one's enemies, a distress so much a matter of constitution with him, that at times it would seem that the best pleasures of life could but be snatched, as it were hastily, in one moment's forgetfulness of its dark besetting influence. A sudden suspicion of hatred against him, of the nearness of enemies, seemed all at once to alter the visible form of things, as with the child's hero, when he found the footprint on the sand of his peaceful, dreamy island. His elaborate philosophy had not put beneath his feet the terror of mere bodily evil, much less of inexorable fate and the noise of greedy Acheron. The resting-place to which he presently came, in the keen, wholesome air of the market-place of the little hill-town, was a pleasant contrast to the last effort of his journey. The room in which he sat down to supper, unlike the ordinary Roman inns at that day, was trim and sweet. The firelight danced cheerfully upon the polished three-wicked lucernae, burning cleanly with the best oil, upon the whitewashed walls, and the bunches of scarlet carnations set in glass goblets. The white wine of the place put before him, of the true colour and flavour of the grape, and with a ring of delicate foam as it mounted in the cup, had a reviving edge or freshness he had found in no other wine. These things had relieved a little the melancholy of the hour before, and it was just then that he heard the voice of one newly arrived at the inn, making his way to the upper floor, a youthful voice with a reassuring clearness of note, which completed his cure. He seemed to hear that voice again in dreams, uttering his name, then, awake in the full morning light, and gazing from the window, saw the guest of the night before, a very honourable-looking youth, in the rich habit of a military knight, standing beside his horse, and already making preparations to depart. 
It happened that Marius, too, was to take that day's journey on horseback. Riding presently from the inn, he overtook Cornelius, of the Twelfth Legion, advancing carefully down the steep street, and before they had issued from the gates of Urbs Vetus, the two young men had broken into talk together. They were passing along the street of the goldsmiths, and Cornelius must needs enter one of the workshops for the repair of some button or link of his knightly trappings. Standing in the doorway, Marius watched the work, as he had watched the brazier's business a few days before, wondering most at the simplicity of its processes, a simplicity, however, on which only genius in that craft could have lighted. By what unguessed-at stroke of hand, for instance, had the grains of precious metal associated themselves with so daintily regular a roughness, over the surface of the little casket yonder? And the conversation which followed, hence arising, left the two travellers with sufficient interest in each other to ensure an easy companionship for the remainder of their journey. In time to come, Marius was to depend very much on the preferences, the personal judgments, of the comrade who now laid his hand so brotherly on his shoulder as they left the workshop. Itineris matutini gratiam capimus, observes one of our scholarly travellers, and their road that day lay through a country well fitted by the peculiarity of its landscape to ripen a first acquaintance into intimacy its superficial ugliness throwing the wayfarers back upon each other's entertainment in a real exchange of ideas, the tension of which, however, it would relieve ever and anon by the unexpected assertion of something singularly attractive. The immediate aspect of the land was, indeed, in spite of abundant olive and ilex, unpleasing enough. A river of clay seemed, in some old night of time, to have burst up over valley and hill, and hardened there into fantastic shelves and slides and angles of cadaverous rock, up and down among the contorted vegetation, the hoary roots and trunks seeming to confess some weird kinship with them. But that was long ago, and these pallid hillsides needed only the declining sun touching the rock with purple, and throwing deeper shadow into the immemorial foliage, to put on a peculiar, because a very grave and austere, kind of beauty, while the graceful outlines common to volcanic hills asserted themselves in the broader aspect. And for sentimental Marius, all this was associated, by some perhaps fantastic affinity, with a peculiar trait of severity, beyond his guesses as to the secret of it, which mingled with the blitheness of his new companion. Concurring, indeed, with the condition of a Roman soldier, it was certainly something far more than the expression of military hardness or ascasis, and what was earnest or even austere in the landscape they had traversed together seemed to have been waiting for the passage of this figure to interpret or inform it. Again, as in his early days with Flavian, a vivid personal presence broke through the dreamy idealism, which had almost come to doubt of other men's reality, reassuringly indeed, yet not without some sense of a constraining tyranny over him from without. For Cornelius, returning from the campaign, to take up his quarters on the Palatine in the Imperial Guard, 
seemed to carry about with him, in that privileged world of comely usage to which he belonged, the atmosphere of some still more jealously exclusive circle. They halted on the morrow at noon, not at an inn, but at the house of one of the young soldier's friends, whom they found absent, indeed, in consequence of the plague in those parts, so that after a midday rest only they proceeded again on their journey. The great room of the villa, to which they were admitted, had lain long untouched, and the dust rose as they entered, into the slanting bars of sunlight that fell through the half-closed shutters. It was here, to while away the time, that Cornelius bethought himself of displaying to his new friend the various articles and ornaments of his knightly array, the breastplate, the sandals and cuirass, lacing them on one by one with the assistance of Marius, and finally the great golden bracelet on the right arm, conferred on him by his general for an act of valour. And as he gleamed there, amid that odd interchange of light and shade, with the staff of a silken standard firm in his hand, Marius felt as if he were face to face for the first time with some new knighthood or chivalry, just then coming into the world. It was soon after they left this place, journeying now by carriage, that Rome was seen at last, with much excitement on the part of our travellers. Cornelius and some others, of whom the party then consisted, agreeing, chiefly for the sake of Marius, to hasten forward, that it might be reached by daylight, with a cheerful noise of rapid wheels, as they passed over the flagstones. But the highest light upon the mausoleum of Hadrian was quite gone out, and it was dark before they reached the Flaminian Gate. The abundant sound of water was the one thing that impressed Marius, as they passed down a long street, with many open spaces on either hand. Cornelius to his military quarters, and Marius to the old dwelling-place of his fathers. End of chapter 10